Hello, everyone. Welcome to ACR 23. This is the Room Now Daily Recap. This is where the faculty get together at the end of the day, um, pour a glass of wine, uh, open a bottle of beer, and say, gee, let me tell you about what I saw today. I'm joined today by uh, Dr. Robert Chow in Virginia, Sheila Reyes in the Philippines, Yuz Yusuf, who's here in San Diego with me, as is Rachel Tate, and I'm Jack Cush. Um, I, the, the rules here are each of us are going to give you our uh, main thing that we want to talk about from today. And then after we've all gone around, we'll give you some quick hits to round out this session. Uh, let's begin with Dr. Rachel Tate. Rachel, what did you see today that was great? Hey, guys. So um, I'm going to talk about abstract 0494, which was um, understanding inflammatory bowel disease in our spa patients, non-radiographic AS and um, PSA patients. So this is a Spanish study looked at about 550 patients, majority of whom were actually men. But it's interesting and why I like this study is because they checked a fetal or pardon me, fecal um, calprotectin in patients prior to sending them on for evaluation for GI. Um, why this is important to me is because the reality of a, a fecal um, calprotectin, it's only a $20 test. So what they found is that if a rheumatologist checked this in these patients, these spondy patients, that 40% actually had an elevated um, FC level, which led to the diagnosis of inflammatory bowel disease in about 4% of these patients, an actual formal diagnosis. So um, it teaches me that we have a lot to learn about the um, the breadth of these diseases and how they actually affect all of us. So um, why were the spa patients being sent for GI evaluations? So if you kind of dig in a little bit deeper, they had, um, some of them had a family history of, of inflammatory back disease, as well as a family history of um, inflammatory bowel disease. Some of them actually had symptoms at diagnosis of inflammatory nocturnal back pain, things like that. So it's kind of taking a deeper dive. It's actually the ISER cohort study. So it's really, um, it's like 13 different hospitals in Spain. And I actually categorize this as an ACR best for us today. So what do you guys think of that? Do you, uh, is this something rheumatologists should be worried about? Occult inflammatory bowel disease? Yeah, I think so. I think, you know, number one, hopefully it also uh, decreases the wait time, right? Because, you know, to visit any specialist rheumatology, GI, usually the wait time I'm hearing from patients, months, months to half a year. Um, but I'm also curious what the GI docs think, right? You know, I think obviously refreshing for us in rheumatology, I hope to them it's not, oh my God, got another positive ANA referred to, you know, rheumatology here. Hopefully it's not that. It does seem like the data is promising. Stepping on toes. That's what we like to do with collaboration <laughs> efforts, right? Right. Uh, Here's, what do you think? Uh, Rachel, I'm oh, sorry. Um, uh, did they give you like number needed to treat or anything or number needed to harm, you know, with that? So it's just, a, it's a relatively small study, right? It's 550 patients. It's one cohort. It's one standardization of patients. But what it shows me is we need to be asking more questions. And also the price differential between an actual colonoscopy versus a fecal calprotectin, or um, protectin, I'm never going to say that right, <laughs> calprotectin is significant. You know, there was another uh, abstract, a poster today. Um, 
0495 that also looked at uh, a finding of occult uh, IBD in spa patients, over 500 patients. Um, and they found that uh, 47% of patients with PSA had a fecal calprotectin that was elevated, 53%. So the problem is uh, calprotectin is an inflammatory marker in general in inflammatory diseases. So it may not be by itself uh, indicative of IBD, but it's certainly a clue, right? And, yeah. But they did find on colonoscopy, I think the number was 4% of their patients or total of 23 patients who actually had IBD. So interesting stuff. Sheila, do you encounter this at all? Yeah, I just wanted to add earlier, um, well, because of the our resource limited setting, we don't usually um, request for fecal calprotectin left and right. Um, it's still a bit pricey here in our country. Um, and so we still go clinical. Um, uh, if patient if a patient presents with um, GI symptoms in the background of inflammatory um, back pain and um, and other spa features, then we do uh, request for fecal calprotectin. But I think um, one of the things that we also should consider is that if we get patients with um, inflammatory back pain or a diagnosis of AXPA, we really need to ask questions, GI symptoms, apart from the fecal calprotectin or requesting it, because we know that treatment um, also guides um, the, the symptom, symptomatology of these patients. Okay. Sheila, I, I want you to speak up louder and speak into your microphone so that you're going to be at the same audio level as the rest of us. Let's go All on right. to our next presentation from Yus, Yusuf. Yep, so uh, today uh, I've been to a few uh, SLE sessions, uh, especially the, the treatment uh, part. Um, so I'm just going to talk about the abstract uh, 0781. Um, as we all uh, aware, the, the treatment, the, the there's a, the paradigm shift in terms of treatment of lupus nephritis. And now the big topic is all about combination therapies from the onset and also the use of low glucocorticoids. So I think that's what our target. Um, so this uh, in this study, so what they've done is they compared um, you know, patients uh, who were on the standard of care arm of four RCT. So basically, these patients were treated uh, with um, mycophenolates or cyclophosphamide, uh, and in combination with either low dose um, uh, uh, glucocorticoid, uh, which is uh, they define as up to five milligram per kilogram a day. Um, uh, so it's a 0.5, or the other one is up to one uh, milligram kilogram uh, per day. Um, and then what they've done is they've um, said so they've compared uh, in terms of the renal response. Uh, and also adverse events. Uh, and uh, what they found that there was no uh, significant difference in renal responses if you use the lower dose uh, um, oral steroid uh, versus a higher dose. Uh, and in fact, uh, there were less you know, side effects in the low dose steroid. So um, it, it looks like promising that you know, we can use like, oral uh, low dose uh, steroid from the outset you know, for remission induction in lupus nephritis. Yus, can you put that in real terms that I can understand? Telling me 0 0.5, you know, apples per oranges per kilogram or whatever, I don't understand. I don't understand. So we're talking about um, low dose being how much yeah, and so, uh, st yeah, versus so standard dose of how much talking prednisone doses. 
Yeah, so basically, um, the dose is, um, you know, for, for, for example, if it's uh, your 60 um, kilogram, the higher dose is up to 60 milligram. So it's like one milligram per kilogram per day, uh, whether the lower dose is half of that. So basically, you know, 30 milligram. So, you know, some people, if you have like 100 kilogram, then you, you can even start 100, 100 uh, milligram of steroid, isn't it? So it's quite high. So is it where, so obviously it's where you start that doesn't matter, but it doesn't have to do with how fast you like, how long it takes to taper and where you end up. Is that as, as important? Yeah, so so th that is important, and that is the one of the limitation that the authors acknowledge, uh, because uh, these four different trials have different protocols, so they are heterogeneous. So that's one of the limitation because some you know, trial, particularly the bucosporin one, they have really rapid reduction of steroid, whereas other trials were not. Yeah, so that's one of the limitation. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's interesting. Um, I, I think when we're all dealing with nephritis, newly diagnosed nephritis, I, I do believe that every one of us are using high dose, are using milligram per kilogram doses to start. And, you know, if you listen to people who are who are lupus mavens, like Dr. Yusuf and others, they're telling us we need to get that down because that's where all the complications are and whatever. So uh, how do the rest of you see this changing um, how you manage. Um, Rachel, what would you do? I mean, I think you said it best. This is an example of potential for what we can do in real world that gives us the confidence to actually do that. So the way I interpreted this particular study, and I actually tweeted about this too, is that it gives me the confidence to maybe not have to start as high, but it really depends on the context of the patient. If it is an aggressive patient and their lupus nephritis is, is very active, I'm still going to kind of lean a little bit toward the opportunity of starting them at a higher dose, but maybe weaning them down faster. That's the problem, isn't it? You know, so uh, Sheila, you see a lot of lupus in the Philippines. You know, you see an acute lupus nephritis with hematuria and a bump in creatinine and you you find, you know, variable amounts of protein and, and their lupus is otherwise active. Um, do you have the guts to give them, you know, uh, you know, 20, 30, 40 milligrams <laughs> as opposed to 60, 80 or 100? Well, uh, honestly, um, I would still go with the high dose, especially um, if the because, you know, um, lupus patients, um, at least in our in my experience, they come and um, you see them at very high disease activity. Um, and so you don't really have any room for giving low dose, especially if, um, you know, uh, the delay in diagnosis has already been there. Um, systemic involvement is, um, is a lot. And um, I think what's important here is that we give the high dose, but if we can give it at a shorter duration and then taper off immediately, then I think that would be the best. Um, so at the back of my mind, I, I um, while we're talking right now, um, I'm reminded of Professor uh, Michelle Petrie's um, reminder that, you know, steroids are poison, prednisone is bad. So if we could give it at a, um, the higher dose, if it could give it at a shorter duration, 
um, and then taper off immediately, that would be good. But of course, we know that it's not always like that in real life. Uh, Dr. Chow, have you been modifying your steroid use you know, uh, in disease like this? I think to answer your question to Sheila, you know, do I have the guts before today? Maybe. But, you know, from today, today's plenary session on ankylvasculitis and that rapid taper actually being associated with worsening, you know, everything, relapse disease for ankylvasculitis, uh, uh, CK or ESRD, I should say, you know, we were all excited, I think, because the Pexavas came out when I was in training and we we're like, okay, let's use a fast taper. Let's go for prednisone, you know, P is for poison. But then today, kind of that, and then, you know, this, I don't know what to make of this because I hope the day of the rings true, but, you know, I don't know if there's still enough out there for me to treat these severely sick patients, you know, with, with lower steroids um, just yet, especially when they come in so sick in a, in a hospital setting. So is anybody going to be covering that Pexivast low-dose regimen abstract? Okay. Robert, aren't no. you? Uh, I, I actually not know. Well, well, so Dr. Chow is talking about um, one of the plenary sessions was on uh, another reanalysis of Pexivast, where they had a low-dose regimen of 0.5 versus 1.0. And the bottom line, it was a very good presentation. Um, uh, the bottom line is that that low dose regimen was associated with all the bad outcomes, you know, including higher mortality and whatnot. So suggesting that if you've got, you know, serious, you know, bad news, ANCA positive vasculitis, um, don't be skimping on the steroids. So we're now we're gonna circle back to use and use, uh, you obviously, I did this on purpose to say that there's pushback on this and there's worry about this. Did this come up at all during the presentation? Yes, I do, but just like to uh, emphasize as well, uh, you know, before they, uh, you know, we started the low dose or versus high dose, the patient did have uh, three days pulses of IV metalprednisolone. So basically, you just give them three IV metalprednisolone whack, and then you start oral prednisolone. Uh, but to 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 talk about the low dose oral steroids, actually the data that supported this is the voclosporin because they didn't start on you know one milligram per kilogram a day they give a three dose IV metal prednisolone and they, they give combination voclosporin mycophenolate and actually they start steroid on 25 milligrams so um so there is a data that you know from clinical trials you know to start from that and low but like you say you know, it's a personalized treatment. You also have to depend on the severity of the patient, you know, what class of lupus nephritis and, and so forth. Yeah. Right. And, and I think it helps to talk to and listen to people who are experts in lupus management because they have, just like all of you are totally wigged out and losing your mind over a lupus patient with a platelet count of 24,000, the hematologist is not even losing any sleep, not even taking your call because the patient's not bleeding and it's not below 8,000. So, you know, dealing with the people who deal, who deal with these problems, you, you, we do need to listen, we do need to learn. Let's move on. Um, Dr. Reyes, what do you have from today? Okay, so um, I found uh, one of the abstracts during the plenary sessions interesting. It's um, abstract number 0723. So um, it's about um, biomarkers and SLEPAH. Um, so uh, the group by Dr. Deng um, from China um, wanted to investigate um, the pathogenesis of SLEPH and identify biomarkers. And so um, through um, 
whole exome sequencing and um, GWAS, they, um, they conducted the study and they showed that um, the TRAF5 or the tumor necrosis factor receptor associated factor 5 um, was a susceptible gene in SLEPAH. And um, so they found oh, sorry, that. Sorry, PAH being pulmonary arterial hypertension. But yes, go ahead. pulmonary arterial hypertension. And so um, through flow um, cytometry of um, uh, uh, pulmonary um, endothelial cells, um, they found a significant um, increase in early apoptotic cells and the loss of the migratory ability of um, these cells um, when there is TRAF knockdown. And then in in the in their mouse model, when they um, over um, they saw that overexpression of TRAF5 attenuated PAH symptoms in their model. So, um, no, hmm. just uh, probably uh, it would require future research, but it would be nice if we would have um, biomarkers for for <clears throat> conditions like um, PAH and SLE. We know that confers um, high morbidity and mortality and maybe these could be um, these biomarkers can um, help in the diagnosis or even in um, treatment um, considerations in the future. Yeah this is this was high science and um, backed up by clinical data backed up by animal um, uh, uh, data showing yeah. really that the again the knockout um, um, or the ones who are going to get into trouble here. The, you know, the question is, how does this going to translate to practice? And, you know, PAH is a, an uncommon manifestation, but a bad manifestation of lupus. Um, so I, I like the approach because I do think we, lupus, there are still a lot of battles to be fought. And if they can be won by uh, this kind of investigation and, and identifying biomarkers, I think that patients are going to do better. Um, you, you, you're, you're our resident lupus expert. How did you look at this data? Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good data, but uh, one thing that's um, going to be quite hard is I think, you know, you need like a larger sample size, isn't it? I think um, it's very rare. I mean, I've, I've hardly seen many people with, uh, you know, severe pulmonary hypertension complications. So I think they were saying like the quotation up to potentially 15%, but we definitely certainly see less than that. Uh, and quite a lot of the the pulmonary complication is more the you know the, the plural the serocytes plural fusion you got your pleurisy and sometimes you got your shrinking lung syndrome but um, certainly pulmonary hypertension is is something that um, you know is, is is quite rare so maybe uh, you know it's more like a sample size and then can uh, help with the with the utility you know cost utility of of, of the test yeah. yeah you wonder if if they would be able to find the same um association with patients with scleroderma for instance yeah. um which is not too too far left of of sle uh let's move on dr dr chow what was your big hit for the day yeah so um you know uh, i want to talk about abstract 0845 um and this one focused on the yield of repeating assessments and chronic back pain when you're trying to assess for early axial spinal arthritis um, so I got to tell you, you know, in my clinic, I see so many young patients who, and a lot of them are, you know, also in the healthcare field, physicians, nurses, and I think it's a gift and a curse, right? Because we we just know so much and everything that can go wrong. So, you know, pinky hurts, maybe RA, 
back hurts. I read about ankylosing spondylitis, stock help, you know, that kind of thing. And, and sometimes we go on these wild goose chases for, for long periods of time trying to figure out, is this ever going to develop into ax spa, especially in those patients with a family history who are men who are B27 positive, but they don't have all the distinguishing features. So um, this study looked at over 500 patients um, and they actually followed them for, you know, actually obviously at the beginning and then three months, one year and two years where they repeated their clinical assessments, uh, inflammatory markers, and, and interestingly enough, imaging. And the overall, the kind of take home message is the yield of uh, repeating these assessments with chronic, just chronic back pain and kind of looking for a new diagnosis of AXPA was was low, kind of as ex as we expected at the two-year mark. Um, interestingly enough, they just said kind of what we also expect that what you have a baseline is probably what you're going to keep having, uh, and meaning not much new, at least in two years of follow-up. Uh, but the interesting thing, things they found were one, they, you know, the one thing that did lead to new AXPA diagnosis is of course, sacroiliitis on MRI. I think that's a, that's self-explanatory, but also uh, response to NSAIDs. Um, last year, pretty big study, interesting study. NSAIDs not really a good predictor of inflammatory back pain, right? As, as we're taught in school. Um, and then they did say overall though, um, again, repeating MRIs, does have a low yield unless you are a male who's B27 positive, then you could, you know, consider repeating MRI in a sort of annual to biannual basis. So, Robert? Go ahead, Rachel. I was just going to ask, did they look initially at only x-rays or did they also look at MRI, like at baseline? Yeah, initially there was a, it was a mix, a mix of radiographs and MRIs. Did they do stir anti one weighted or they, you know? They didn't comment on that part. They didn't okay. get. Oh, no, I'm sorry. They did. They disturbed T one weighted. They they didn't comment on that. So I think this is an area where we underutilize the collaboration with radiology teams and especially with the T one weighted image because oftentimes, and we've seen this time and time again, we have data on this that the T one weighted image, though it's hypo intense, right? It's a darker image. It's gadolinium enhanced, and those patients that can do GAD enhanced images, sometimes we see those, those protocols actually showing earlier changes in a STIR image. Now, that's not across the board, but I'm just curious as to maybe what the protocol was that they used. Yeah. And and we can look at that further, but no, I it's, think, an, I think it's an interesting study. I think definitely if you want to, you know, obviously get into a, a more kind of particular study, I think obviously a lot of room if you want to standardize those. I think there's still some controversy on like, you know, AXPA experts recommending STIR versus, you know, what you mentioned T1. Mm -hmm. But again, I think obviously an interesting study subject in the future. And short time who, frame, right? Who are the docs doing these assessments? Are these primary care? Or are these rheumatologists? Oh, no, these are rheumatologists that I think they used, what was it called? A, that a interesting name, Space space Cohort in, in Europe as multi-center uh, mostly, um, you know, obviously including rheumatologists here or there. And did they have so, an explanation why there was different between the, you know, the, the gender between female and male? Well, I think, you know, as probably as we're, you know, mostly taught, you know, uh, AXPA is still predominantly a male disease, even though the ratio is down a little bit lower from nine to one to roughly two to one. But I don't think they offered really an explanation into why the gender difference there.
Um, and they Robert, were just, sorry, go ahead, Sheila, go okay. ahead. Uh, no, I was just wondering if um, did they only focus on back pain or did patients, um, like for example, for those who um, developed symptoms of um, AS or AXPA, um, did they have other symptoms um, other than the back pain? No, I think this was strictly focusing on just chronic back pain symptoms. And I think, again, mainly the back pain, the inflammatory markers, and then, of course, the, the imaging. Okay. I just want to highlight something that Sheila was mentioning. The female patients in non-radiographic and AS present differently. So I think that's a, a limitation potentially for this study, but that may not have been what they're studying. So it's just a highlight that I like to, I'd like to bring up. Yeah, that's a good point, Rachel, <laughs> because females do present differently and less on back pain, but more on fibromyalgia and other um, systemic symptoms. That's a whole other can of worms, though. I mean, women certainly with uh, ankylosing spondylitis in the spa do have a different course, a, a different presentation, a different time in their life and whatnot. And then if you get into this consideration of non-radiographic axial spa, um, you're, where they have negative x-rays, you're, you're going to need to do an MR. The question is, do you keep doing it? And that's, I think, where there might be some wisdom from this study that could be applied to that, although that wasn't probably the in intent here. But uh, I think we've all been in a situation of, of more women than men and more, more middle-aged than very young who have this back pain, which has an inflammatory kind of back pain component. And you're stuck with wondering, should I be using a TNF inhibitor or an IL-17 inhibitor? Um, or should I do the evaluations? And I don't know that we have any, any firm answers on that. Um, anybody want to make a wild suggestion before we move on? I mean, I always make wild suggestions. <laughs> I think that was geared go, toward me. Go for it. No, I, I mean, I, I think we need to be following these patients a little bit closer. But I also, to Robert's point, the time frame of the study, going back to that, the nadir of this conversation, was two years. The question really becomes, is there two-year progression? Do we see this with non-radiographic? We know these patients, if they're treated aggressively, treated early, they don't tend to um, move into that AS territory by classification. But right. I do think we are missing a portion of these patients. We still have delay in diagnoses. We still have difficulty with even reading some of our own imaging there's a lot to learn about, about AXPA, and um, I'm hoping the future will be clearer for us. Yeah, I, I think that that's a, a very fair statement. I think it's a challenging area. And, and, and yeah, the number of people that will evolve from non-radiographic to radiographic AXPA is a minority. You know, it's either a single digit up to 20 to 20 percent um, <clears throat> that will progress, but depends on how far you follow them over time. But um uh, I think that there's a, a wisdom in uh, Robert's uh, uh, research that he pointed out today that I think does apply to other situations as well. I want to um, go over a session I, I um, attended this evening that I thought was kind of interesting. And uh, it was abstract 0836. Um, and it's about... Um, uh, vagotomy uh, as a means of preventing rheumatoid arthritis. 
The background here, as you know, is this been research initially reported by Mark Genovese a few years ago about um, vagal nerve stimulation leading to a reflex that is sort of inhibitory to uh, TNF production. Um, so it's a, if you will, an anti-TNF approach. And in an open label, um, you know, low number patient trial, it sort of looked good. And those interventions were, in fact, real surgical um, vagal nerves in the neck with a lot of local complications and pathologies and Horner syndrome and bleeding and all that kind of thing. And um, subsequently, the companies that have worked on this trial have gone to auricular um, ways of stimulating the vagal nerve. Um, and the problem is that those results have been disappointing at this point. So these researchers uh, who are, by the way, the same researchers who are developing this auricular nerve um, intervention, um, decided to develop some supportive data while they're doing more studies. And they looked at people undergoing um, vagotomy, uh, either full truncal vagotomy or uh, partial vagotomies and something called super selective vagotomies, um, where these are being done in the abdomen, you know, surgically. And, um, and they're being done for people um, and the treatment of peptic ulcer disease. Right. And this was a treatment was developed back in the 1940s and is still done today, albeit not that common. And a lot of these patients are probably older. Um, this data might even be older than the PPIs that are out there. But they had some really big numbers and they got their numbers from the data, you know, those Danish uh, databases, Danish databases that are really rich with uh, the quality of data that is in there. And they compared uh, full truncal vagotomy in 2200 patients um and uh though and, and compared it to a general uh population cohort of uh 22,000 so 10 to 1 and then they compared uh, something a more super selective and the full truncal vagotomy you you're cutting the vagus nerve there's no more vagal stimulation right that would be like uh turning off um uh uh uh, uh, I'm sorry, or turning on a feed for TNF, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. um, where a super selective, there's still some vagal nerve activity, which is sort of like a low dose in a, in a clinical intervention trial. The bottom line, when they compared full truncal vagotomy to um, the general population, they had really impressive, clearly selective uh, 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 increase, uh, a selective increase in the incidence of rheumatoid arthritis over that seen the general population. And just for comparison's sake, uh, other patients undergoing full truncal vagotomy, they looked at the um, development of osteoarthritis, right, in those who had the vagotomy and those who uh, were from the general population, and the lines were overlapping. So it clearly seemed to promote the onset of rheumatoid arthritis. There's a bunch of other analyses that are probably not worth going into here, but this was viewed as, you know, sort of a proof of concept that that the vagal, vagal nerve could be involved. Now, some of the things that happened in this presentation was the audience said, you know, people with peptic ulcer disease requiring vagotomies, you know, they're probably smoking and drinking and and riding motorcycles for all we know and and engaging in risky behaviors that may 
But if anything, that would actually increase the odds that they would get RA in addition to this. So, you know, maybe there could be some confounding there. Um, people postulated that by changing the pH of the stomach, you'll be changing the microbiome, and that will be contributing. So there's a lot of things that are in play here that are interesting. Um, and the last thing that's interesting is the same author, Dr. Baker, um, did the next presentation, which was the next phase of this auricular nerve stimulation. Uh, and the data that he showed was, um, shall I say, inconclusive, meaning not supportive of that as a treatment for rheumatoid arthritis. They're going back and they're doing more studies going forward, but this would be, again, a non-pharmacologic way of maybe alleviating rheumatoid arthritis. I, I thought it was exciting when it first came out. And I thought, yeah, not much of it again. Jack, what do you think and Mark would say? Was he there? He was there and, I, and, he, and he left before I could talk to him. So uh, I know he was there. Uh, and has been a, and he's been a consultant to these people uh, and started some of this research um, back when he was still still at Stanford. Um, so um, I'll be interested in talking to him going forward. But I did present this because I do think this is something that you'll be possibly hearing about in the news. So, all right, let's go around and maybe get uh, one more uh, um, slice of the meeting. Um, let, let's begin with Dr. Chow. Okay, my next uh, abstract, um, 0722, uh, by my UCSD colleague. So shout out to UCSD there. Uh, looking at cardiovascular events in uh, autoimmune rheumatic uh, disease pregnancies. Um, they actually looked at a large, large database, um, all live births in California over a 15-year span uh, up to 2020. Um, they noted cardiovascular events in about 2% uh, of patients of pregnant women with rheumatic disease or autoimmune rheumatic diseases, almost 7% in uh, pregnant women with primary uh, antiphospholipid syndrome. And then the risk was significantly higher in, uh, in pregnant uh, women with rheumatic disease and uh, antiphospholipid syndrome. And then the highest risk, I think the relative ratio, risk ratio was about 18, were, were of course um, uh, unexpectedly, or I'm sorry, expectedly in the lupus uh, group with antiphospholipid syndrome. Um, I think, you know, um, data is not too surprising, especially in the lupus and antiphospholipid syndrome uh, category. But I, the one take home message here was also the cardiovascular events, um, about almost a third, 30% occurred during the postpartum period. So, uh, you know, when we think of these uh, pregnant patients with our diseases, we tend to follow them closely during pregnancy. I would say don't let your foot off the gas after uh, delivery here. So the other, th so the, the, the three high risk groups, these were pregnant women who either had a rheumatic disease with antiphospholipid lupus with antiphospholipid, antiphospholipid, but also lupus and with nephritis also were a higher risk there. Um, what kind of cardiovascular events are we talking about here? Are these just venous thromboembolic events or was it was it more serious than that? I think they broke it down into, um, I forget the exact one they looked at, but definitely included MI. I would have to look over the uh, exact cardiovascular events, but I don't, you know, I, I, I think MI for sure, but I don't think they right. broke down the rest of the cardiovascular events here. Right. It was, but yeah, I th and that was my impression as well, uh, Robert, that, that it was 
to have MI and Mace and, and a few others, but it was, so it was serious stuff. So, mm -hmm. and, and again, these are the people we do take care of. And I think that there's, and now it, the question is, is this real? Is this something that you see? And I think that all of us have taken care of a lot of lupus patients. I gotta say, I haven't seen that many, I've seen VTE events, but you know, MI, heart failure, arrhythmias, I don't know. And the question is, is this, I mean, this is claims data, by the way. Um, this was not a prospective study. This is claims data um, done by Tina Chambers from UCSD. And she's like the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the, the master at um, this kind of data and analysis. So um, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, my only caveat is I'm concerned about why, why have I not seen any of this? And I've certainly seen plenty. Um, anybody else have any, any other can support this kind of co uh, concern or, or argue against it? Yeah, so I think similar to your experience as well, Jack, uh, I've not seen many major cardiovascular events, like, you know, uh, shortly, you know, postpartum in a woman with lupus. I'm just wondering, um, Robert, um, in, in the abstract, did they discuss whether this patient, did they have uh, underlying cardiovascular disease like before they deliver babies? No, no, they um, did not. No. All right, Rachel, what's what's your big hit? Um, little hit, I have I'm sorry. Two. No, no, little hit. So I will, um, I'm not going to piggyback off Robert like I I told everybody I was going to do. Um, Dr. Pooja Mehta, it, this is not an abstract. This was a really great lesson. Um, this was one of the sessions today. She did a, a session on imposter syndrome. And I don't know about you guys, but I've definitely had imposter syndrome. It's possible I still have some. And she and her take-home messages had three things that we need to work on. We need to reflect when you have an accountability buddy, don't try to take it on by yourself. Check your back, uh, your values, check your actions, hold on to your hope, and then mobilize. So get out there, get, get doing things, go to the gym, change your character in a way that you don't question your judgment anymore. Just take some time away from that. But the most valuable point was to create. Flip your bias check out what you're doing. And then the best point that she made, which is her main take home was improve yourself and the people around you and do that with love, which is what I think is the, the crux of what we do at room now. And it just hit home for me. And this is a prime example. Yeah. I mean, I do think this is a, a big problem for a number of people and, um, and I want to say it might even be related to burnout in, in, in some people as well. Um, and um, it's good to have this sort of counsel um, on this because uh, it doesn't seem like it's restricted to a young person or a middle-aged person or a successful person or, a, you know, I think it affects, you know, the wealthiest and the most successful and, and the newest and the brightest. Um, so uh, it might be a good listen for people to get a hold of that uh, presentation. That's, I believe that's one of the ones that is going to be on demand um, probably yeah. the week after the meeting that you could listen to that. Yuz, mm -hmm. do you have a, 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 sh a quick hit that you want to review for the audience? Yep. So I don't really like to uh, talk about my project, but it's just because I, you know, I got so much attention today in my posters that there's been, there's been tons of people over there. Please do, please out. do. Yeah. So, um, so my uh, so the abstract is uh zero uh, five four eight. Um, so this is looking at the uh, 
people with ANA positive uh, with the diagnosis. Um, so the aim really uh, for this um, uh, uh, study uh, is uh, to help the rheumatologist uh, when you were first referred by primary care, you know, fresh, uh, whether is there any predicting uh, prediction tool that can help you exclude those with non-autoimmune pathology. You know, for example, like, you know, if you do get like someone referred with acne and ANA, then I think that's quite easy to say, well, you don't have lupus and, you know, you can't quite safely discharge them. But those people that come with arthralgia, I got a little bit of rash a few months ago, maybe a bit of fatigue. So some rheumatologists find it difficult because they tend to do just watch and observe, you know, uh, strategy. And this is not cost effective, really. So if we've got a good tool, then that will be helpful. Um, so what we've done is um, we've uh, recruited all these newly referred um, ANA positive uh from the primary care, there were 150, uh, 148 patients altogether, and we look at a few clinical and also interferon biomarkers. Um, what we found, um, so this is actually three analysis. Um, so we found uh, at uh, what year one and also year three, there were three uh, important uh, markers. Uh, one is the baseline um, higher interferon score. Um, secondly, is um, if you have a family history of first degree relative of any autoimmune rheumatic, rheumatic and musculoskeletal diseases. And so the third one, if you have a higher number criteria. So if you do all this combination, combine um, you know, biomarkers, the, a, um, the area under the curve actually becomes 0.89. So it's really good. And also the importantly, you need a test or a tool which is high specific, uh, specificity. So in this one, if you use combined marker, uh, the, the specificity, specificity is 98%. Um, so basically it's good you know um this is now undergoing validation so we just uh, finished the cohort validation which hopefully can present in the next one or two years and if this proven to be true these three markers hopefully uh we can then you know use that in practice um that you can say right use this at first presentation we can safe discharge and importantly, uh, the thing is, if those people who are in the high risk core, those are the ones that I wanted to do an in early intervention trial because they are high risk. And then you can then uh, a design a trial in a placebo against a therapy and see whether they progress or not. Yeah. All right. So you're talking about two separate things there. Let's just throw out the high risk group. That's sort of a pre lupus kind of story that we're not going to get into yeah. here where the audience is interested in your ANA referral. Uh, story, but you, you've made it difficult for them trying to find a biomarker that they don't have and or trying to find what about just using other more specific uh, tests like double stranded DNA. Yeah, so that's a good question. So we had a look at the 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 title, uh, the the various range of antibodies, and whether you do accumulation. If you you know count how many antibodies positive, and none of them were actually predictive uh, of progression. So that's why we do need uh, all this. Uh, yeah, and I do agree in terms of practicality, whether it's availability. Um, so the next, um, so, you know, well, the, the current project as well is actually we are looking into like proteomics. Uh, and because in the proteomics is quite easy to measure, uh, and if it's, if this is compatible to the interferon score that we that we've got, uh, and hopefully this is more accessible and and it can easy to use for practice. Yeah, uh, I'll, I'll I'll voice a, a little uh, tidbit of of support in what you're going through here. We all want to just say you know ANA positive. Don't worry, lady. None of these people, none like you, will ever have lupus. And I I see a thousand consults like this. And I'm not even going to re reappoint you back, but 
when I, uh, when I was doing research with the Baylor Research Institute, collecting um, mRNA samples and doing microarrays um, to classify patients immunologically with Virginia Pasquale, when there's a certain pattern of gene expression that's very typical for lupus um, and a different pattern, very typical for Stills disease, which I was very interested in. But the lupus patients had a very distinctive pattern. Um, and when I used controls, osteoarthritis, gout, fibromyalgia, ANA positive uh, referrals, um, the ANA positive referrals that did not have criteria and were told to go away, 5% of them had a microarray uh, signature that looked just like lupus, suggesting that, you know, maybe you want to keep your eye on that person. You know, maybe they have. So anyway, there is something there. And I think a, a good clinical uh, battery uh, along with a biomarker that may not be so hard to get would be a welcome addition to anybody's practice. Um, Sheila, your last uh, research report for today? Um I think I just I wanted to highlight um, a session earlier um, about CNS vasculitis. Um, Dr. Haj Ali gave a very good discussion about CNS vasculitis and just some um, take home points where our um, clinical pearls, as she mentioned, that you know um, CNS vasculitis clinical diagnosis is really difficult because it can present with a lot um, an array of clinical features and um, always do CSF analysis because it is essential in the diagnosis and it can rule out um, other um, entities like infections. And um, non-vascular imaging is highly sensitive. Um, and, you know, brain biopsy is valuable, especially if you're considering an alternative diagnosis. So um, just to point out um, one of her clinical scenarios where um, intravascular lymphoma mimicked um, angiographic findings seen in um, CNS vasculitis. So um, another take-home point there is that, you know, you revisit a diagnosis of CNS vasculitis if your patient on steroids or cyclophosphamide is really not responding or initially responded but went to relapse immediately and so um, consider doing a brain biopsy which is according to her is also underutilized but has prognostic value in it okay yeah that's, these are challenging patients and to have a clear-cut way to consider and evaluate is really a way to go i must say that i have to look it up and or give a call to the cleveland clinic um, to get my my clinical um algorithm back into shape when I am presented with these cases. Um, I'm going to end with a reminder to the audience that there were two um, uh, reprise presentations that are slightly different than what was shown at ULAR. One is abstract 0835, the APIPRA study, um, shows up again, Dr. Andrew Cope and colleagues uh, looking at uh, preclinical RA, 100 patients that were treated with placebo, 100 patients treated with uh, Abitas up 125 weekly, followed for a year, and clearly uh, that worked in preventing uh, the development of RA. And when they stopped the drug at one year uh, and followed them another year, it looked like it delayed the onset of RA, ex unless, of course, you looked at people who had extreme uh, serologic activity, very, very high titers of ACPA, or multiple 
uh, autoantibodies. Those lines never came together, suggesting it still was preventative. So preventative delayed. It's hard. It's an interesting story. It's a repeat story for the potential value of abatacept. Well, I'm not sure where that's going to go. The other one that shows up again, that's a real head scratcher, but really noteworthy is abstract 0839, um, a Chinese study about TLL-018, a combined JAK1 slash TIC2 inhibitor when given to RA patients. And it's a forearm trial uh, with a 12-week uh, endpoint. They either get um, standard dose tofacitinib, 5-BID, versus 10, 20, or 30 milligrams of this TLL-018. And um, looking at an ACR-50 outcome, you would expect with any great therapy, about a 40% ACR-50 outcome. That's exactly what tofacitinib showed. And that's also what the low dose of TLL-018 showed. But the two higher doses, 20 and 30, oh my God, it was like 60 and 70%. It was really, really hot. Um, and the question is why, and I, no one can explain why this would happen. Um, fairly well tolerated. Uh, again, they're go, they just started a new uh, phase three trial in biologic um, DMARD incomplete responders. It's going to be done in China again. Maybe we'll see that next year, but that's a real head scratcher. Um, and I mean, really breaks through the ceiling on responses in what should be refractory RA. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed this as much as we did. Uh, tune in tomorrow for day two, daily recap, again, with our Room Now faculty. These guys get a break, and we're going to bring in a whole new crew of four or five. So um, Robert, Sheila, Hughes, and Rachel, thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.